My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And on today's episode, George Lucas makes me go to a bank, withdraw £60, and then makes me go into a shop and buy the latest Blu-ray release of Star Wars. He then ruins my childhood by making Darth Vader say no at the end of Return of the Jedi. I will be taking a look at the most annoying internet phenomenon in recent years. Rather than moaning about crap Blu-ray releases, I'm going to be championing some of the best, and this week I'll be looking at Cross of Iron and How the West Was Won. There's some news on some great podcasts I've been listening to, and an update on my film, all rounded off with a review of How I Ended This Summer and Meek's Cut-Off. The Force is with you, young Skywalker. But you are not a Jedi yet. Recently, Star Wars was released on Blu-ray, the complete saga, all-in-one, glorious box set. This was, for people like me, a chance to revisit the films again in HD and marvel at the fantastic picture and the great surround sound. For others, however, it brought out a new wave of bitching and moaning about George Lucas, and I feel it's time I kind of need to get this subject off my chest once and for all. Since the release of Star Wars all those years ago, he has continually returned to the films to tinker and some say improve, some say degrade the films. For a slightly more definitive list, I would recommend checking out the Hollywood Saloon um, Star Wars uh, episode where they uh, go into some detail about many of these changes that are made. But most of these were kind of like unnoticed. Some, I think, arguably improved them quite a lot. Others, like I said, did kind of uh, cause a little bit of controversy. Most notably, the 1997 special edition releases, which came with a slew of improved effects and added scenes. Some of these caused consternation amongst Star Wars fans. There was the kind of opening up of Mos Eisley with annoying things flying around the camera and large kind of alien creatures walking past the camera. Of course, then came the infamous Han not shooting first and, in fact, Greedo shooting first that caused absolute and quite justifiable outrage amongst the Star Wars community. I, for one, didn't really lose that much sleep over these improvements or changes, whatever you want to call them. But for many, however, who seem to have way too much time on their hands, this became a cause and an incredibly loud and annoying one at that. Now, the internet, I think, really has liberated the way in which people communicate. And I think it's a good thing because, you know, in the age of social media, we can all communicate with people who we would probably never ever get the chance to meet in real life, and we can share opinion and kind of swap stories with them. 
I absolutely love the modern world. I was talking to someone the other day, actually, and I was, I, I was saying how amazing it was how the other day I was sat in there talking to someone on Twitter who I've never met before, who I've kind of bonded over the internet through a mutual love of films, and we were just exchanging stories. And it was great, and I was just saying to someone how, how, how much I enjoy these types of interactions. But one of the things that obviously happens with this is you get a lot of noise from people, and we have the, obviously the rise of the blog and forums and things like that. And when George Lucas started making these changes to Star Wars, we had the whole Lucas stole my childhood bullshit come into fruition. And suddenly, obviously the kind of democratisation of free speech that the internet has allowed has given these people a platform to air their views and their grievances in public. And like I said, I think there is a kind of genuine... Um, reason for some people to be pissed off with kind of things that George Lucas has done but I think for one that the actual genuine reason that people have to be annoyed has become lost in the absolute swathes of bullshit that has begun circulating on the internet now prior to the blu-ray release we heard that Darth Vader was going to be saying no at the end of Return of the Jedi and it was a kind of a harken back to Revenge of the Sith the outcry this caused on forums was absolutely unbelievable. It was almost impossible not to see endless streams on Twitter of people moaning about it and on Facebook. What, however, happened this time was something far more annoying in my eyes. Now, I have owned Star Wars on every possible format imaginable, from when it and I taped it off the television to actually buying the VHS pan and scan, I'm ashamed to admit. I bought the special editions in widescreen, I bought the DVD and I bought the Blu-ray, obviously, the day it came out. And, yeah, you know, there are a lot of these changes that you can track and things like that. But this time, however, there was this kind of one-upmanship going on between kind of Star Wars fans or fanatics, whatever you want to call them, about which version they were going to be kind of watching and how they were going to not buy the Blu-ray and then kind of saying to people that if you do buy the Blu-ray, you're kind of encouraging George Lucas. And it just began to really, really piss me off this time around. Firstly, was this whole kind of what version people were going to kind of resort to. It was like this kind of one-upmanship going on. Well, you know, I'm going to go with my Japanese Laserdisc 1989 import rips that I've got. Yeah, great, that's fantastic. I'm really pleased for you. And then other people, you know, well, I'm going to make an amalgamation of the special editions and the original versions and that would be my official version and it became this one-upmanship that the more kind of close to the original 1977 release you were going to watch the somehow more loyal a fan you were and I got involved rather stupidly I was rather bored one day but I got involved in this rather kind of tete-a-tete kind of argument with someone who was sort of saying the fact that by buying the Blu-ray, I was in fact desecrating the memory of Star Wars. And in the end, I, I kind of, I, I tried to be civil with it, I just, I just thought, I'll just fuck off, you know, I've got better things to do than sit here talking to you. And obviously it was my own fault that I got involved in this pathetic argument. But the simple fact, does, you know, does it really need airing in public what version you're going to be watching? And we all know, you know, this is the thing, we know what George Lucas is like. We know that he likes to tinker. We know that he likes to kind of play around his films. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I do, like I said, there is a real genuine point in here. I do think it is quite, I suppose, arrogant of him, the way he kind of goes about things. I mean, all of this could be kind of resolved if he did release those original 
films, the 77 version, the special editions and this new version. And, you know, what a great box set that would be. You know, and, and, you know he always says that he, he uh, sees Star Wars as an experiment. And you know, what, what a great thing to do if he was to release this kind of box set with all these in it and then kind of talk through the changes and not justify them. He doesn't have to justify them to anyone. But just to explain why he did decide to suddenly have Greedo shoot first, what was his kind of rationale behind it? And then that way, I think we would all be happy. But the simple fact of the matter is that isn't going to happen. And we know that, you know, I think it's fair to say, obviously, George Lucas is an extremely money-motivated person. And, you know, I don't feel some kind of guilt that I'm desecrating film by buying this Blu-ray set. I do think it, there is an inherent contradiction in George Lucas' attitude. I mean, this was someone, don't forget, who testified for a Senate Select Committee in the 80s, saying about the colorization of films being a kind of form of cultural vandalism. And, you know, by the, I, and I've, I have heard some kind of strange rumours about the reason why there will never be a kind of all, bell, all singing and dancing version of Star Wars, and it was apparently because there is not actually an original print of the film in circulation. I don't know whether or not I believe that or not. I've also heard that um, were he to release the original Star Wars, he would owe Marsha Lucas a lot of money. And again, I don't know if that's true. It, obviously, the kind of the rumour will work over time on these types of things. But the simple fact of the matter is, I think we need to kind of collectively move on from the fact that yeah, you know, it does suck that we're not going to kind of get those originals with, you know, a restored print and decent sound. You know, obviously you can go and get the um, DVD where they were released as extras. But, you know, I, I think we have to sort of look at this slightly more objectively. Yes, Star Wars is a, a massive part of my life. I loved it as a kid and I still love it now. And, you know, watching these Blu-rays, again, I, I really enjoy going back to them. Even the prequels, which, you know... I know they're not great, but I, you know, I still enjoy them as being part of the Star Wars universe. But, you know, look at it kind of slightly with, it, with kind of a more open mind. Star Wars, the film, is not as good as Jean Renoir's Le Grand Illusion. And, you know, go and find these other films and kind of, you know, see how important they are to the world of cinema, not just Star Wars. And it does piss me off because of the amount of noise caused by these people. And I sort of sit there, you know, this whole ridiculous nonsense that, you know, because of some bad prequels and some special editions, that you're somehow, your, your childhood has been retrospectively ruined. And these people, obviously, they don't mean it, but it's become this kind of, you know, fake cause when there are so many more important things out there than just some fucking slight changes that for some reason have upset you. And you know, again, I, I do go back to this idea. You know, some of the things in those special editions do annoy me, but you know, it it doesn't undo the magic of the films. It doesn't, you know, somehow make you not like them anymore, or you know, make me think, oh, you know, all those times I used to watch Empire Strikes Back as a kid, and then you know, reenact the battles with my Star Wars toys. You know, all that counts for nothing now because you know, Cloud City's been opened up with a few more special effects. Get the fuck over it and move on. There is more in life to worry about. And one, of the, you know, one thing I would say about this whole kind of George Lucas thing, and I think this is a, a kind of a slightly kind of a little bit of a tangent here, but I think a, a topic which is worth kind of digging into a little bit. We always cry foul of the fact that kind of directors aren't given enough control over their films and their properties. And, you know, certainly when we look at the films from the 70s where directors really were kind of calling the shots, you know, obviously there were kind of the massive success stories, but there were also a fair amount of bombs, and there was a lot of crap made in the 70s, let's not forget that. And 
One of the things I think that is interesting, if we kind of call it the George Lucas experiment, is this is what someone does when they do not have to answer to anyone. Now, if you watch any Star Wars kind of promotion materials, you see his producer, Rick McCullum, on there. And this guy is just like a fucking lapdog. All he ever says is, oh, George is a genius. George this, George is amazing. As a producer, he does not do his job. He's like Michael Jackson's doctor. He's not actually helping his patient. He's just doing what he's told. You know, a producer would have sat there during kind of you know, the Phantom Menace when they were watching Rushes and said, I'm sorry, George, but at the end you need to kind of re-edit the way you're doing this because the tonal shifts between this brilliant stuff with um, Qui-Gon and Darth Maul is completely undermined by having Jar Jar Binks be a twat shooting robots. That's what a producer does. A producer keeps his director in check. And now Lucas doesn't have that. He doesn't have that kind of other voice saying, right, you know, what 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 are you doing here? Let's think about this. Let's kind of, you know, let's try and improve this film. What he does basically is George says, I want this, go and get it for me. And then he tootles off and does it for him. That is not producing in the, I, I don't think, in the kind of truest sense. And I think you have to look at George Lucas and sort of say, well, you know, should directors have all this control, especially some people like him? You know, what if, you know, you know does Michael Bay have this type of control? And I, you know, perhaps he does, you know, think how bloated those films are. You know, perhaps he is the one who says, right, this is what I want and this is what I'm getting. And everyone just kind of bows down and says, yes, you know, see where that leads us. Because at the moment, I don't think there are the creative talents out there, kind of especially directorially, who, if they are having this much control, should have this much control. I think we need to kind of bring in a new age of the kind of super producers, you know, people like Robert Evans and stuff like that on board. Because you know, don't forget, you know, The Godfather, we all love that film, but you know, Robert Evans had a lot of say in how that film came out. And you know, look at the end result, it's an absolute masterpiece. However, one of the good things to come out of all this debacle was was I eventually got round to seeing something which I've heard about on the internet and I've heard it kind of touted by a lot of Star Wars fans as being absolutely brilliant and I kind of, I, for various reasons, I don't know, perhaps I've just had other things to watch but I never kind of got round to kind of getting hold of it and that was a fan edit of Star Wars done by someone called Adwen. Now, again I have to thank the Hollywood Saloon really for pointing me in this direction, especially John Jansen who, when I did an episode of The Sorcerer, he actually very kindly sent me a... Um, fan edit he had made of the film and it really kind of blew me away in terms of the kind of the quality of what can be achieved now especially when you know, we have all these kind of desktop packages you know um, which can help add sound effects special effects and stuff like that and it kind of amazed me because what John had done was he'd gone back and added some more tangerine stuff and given it a kind of the, the sound on on his DVD was actually better than the one I've got which kind of, sort of says a lot really about the uh, the original release but it really kind of opened me up to the eyes of um, looking into the fan edit and there's a brilliant Hollywood soon episode as well on the fan edit which I can recommend checking out but I eventually got hold of a copy of the Adwan um, Star Wars redo that he had done and just to kind of clarify one thing this was like a 8 gigabyte file it's in full surround sound it's, it's not like some crappy DivX rip it's a proper professional made and mastered DVD and what this guy has done is gone back and he's just a, you know, assuage any fears, hand does shoot first in this version, you know, so get that one right out of the way. But what he's actually done is added some more music cues and some special effects. Now, this, I suppose, is a testament to how good these special effects are. Some of them, I didn't actually realise they were 
his own. I actually thought they were still part of the original film. That's how good they look. The final scene at the end of the attack on the Death Star, he's actually added some entire sequences. They are not obviously um, industrial light and magic standard, but they are still pretty damn seamless. And he just added these subtle differences to the film that I think really, really make it like seeing Star Wars again for the first time. I absolutely loved it. I wouldn't say this will become my definitive version of the film to watch when I do kind of go through Star Wars. I don't, but it will certainly be an interesting side companion. I know it's in a colour-corrected version of Empire Strikes Back that I'm going to um, check out, but yeah, there was a few things in the film which I didn't quite agree with, some of the music choices that he made. Um, some were pretty good, like uh, when we first kind of see Darth Vader in just that force choke on that guy in the uh, Death Star. He's added the, um, the music cue from Empire Strikes Back for the Emperor, which I kind of think worked, but... One, one I, d I really didn't agree with and I thought was quite um, distracting was he's added some music from Revenge of the Sith when Obi-Wan is fighting um, Anakin and he's added that to the scene with Darth Vader and Obi-Wan and it's just the pacing is completely wrong. The scene obviously isn't as kinetic as the, the one in Return of the, uh, Revenge of the Sith, sorry. And I didn't think it really worked that well. I did find it a little bit distracting but overall this is an absolutely incredible achievement. Quite rightly so, he hasn't put this out for sale, and I think there is ways of finding it. I'll leave a link on the um, blog if you want to kind of um, find it for yourself. And definitely I can recommend downloading the full 8 gig version because, like I said, the quality is absolutely brilliant. And then we, it was as good as watching um, a fully made professional DVD, so do check it out. And as I said, there will be um, a link on the blog. So in summary, Star Wars fans, and especially I speak to you, the Lucas Stole My Childhood Brigade, I think it's time we collectively get the fuck over it and move on. And for the record, I've bought those Blu-rays. They're fucking brilliant, and I absolutely love them. The surround sound mix, is DTS HD sound, is incredible. And the restoration job, they, they look stunning. So stop hating and go and buy them. And all right, you know, you are kind of funding the end of uh, cinema as we know it, if the haters would like to be believed. But what the heck, if you love Star Wars, go and buy them. They're brilliant. Now, as you may know, I've tried in these episodes to um, champion the very best in Blu-ray. I'm absolutely determined going forward that rather than moaning now about kind of bad uh, transfers and what have you, I'm going to try and pick out some films which I think have completely blown me away on the format and I think you might want to be checking out. And this week I've picked a couple of films which, they're slightly older films, which kind of come into my possession and... They're films I've seen before many, many times. I've owned on different formats and I have been absolutely blown away with them on Blu-ray. Now, the first was Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron. Now, the VHS I had of this film was barely viewable and it wasn't some kind of cheap knockoff thing. This was the actual one that was put out. And there used to be a, um, a VHS distributor in England. I can't remember what they're called now. I think it was an offshoot of... Um, new line and they used to put out these cheap videos they were like six pounds and they were in the worst boxes you could ever imagine they were just absolute cheap looking pieces of shit and cross of iron i remember reading about it in empire magazine they gave it five out of five and i just discovered sam peckinpah this was a tender age of 15 and that week i went and spent my pocket money i got my i think i got my father to buy it because i was 18 but the vhs even then i watched it on a kind of crappy television and it, even then it was barely viewable this film and I don't think I wouldn't say I actually saw it until I bought it on DVD now the DVD release of it wasn't that bad but 
when I heard the film was going to be coming out on Blu-ray, I was a little bit sceptical, I have to be honest with you. The distributor who was putting out was Optimum, and they have had a kind of fairly kind of hit or miss track record so far with Blu-rays. Sometimes they absolutely hit the nail on the head, and other times they seem to get it completely wrong. So I was a little bit dubious as to what could really be done with Cross of Iron, because it's a very dirty looking film. It wasn't, didn't have a particularly massive budget, and I think it was kind of one of those pecking path films that doesn't get the kind of the love and the attention that it does deserve. So I was kind of sceptical, you know, would they actually be able to kind of do a decent restoration on it? Would they be using a decent print of the film? And I saw the review on the excellent Blu-ray.com website, and this very, very rarely lets me down when it comes to um, Blu-ray reviews. Not so much, you don't kind of go, I don't really go on there for the actual reviews of the film, it's more over the judgement on the picture quality and the video. And they, these guys really do need to, really do sorry, know what they're talking about. They really kind of have an excellent technical expertise. And when a film deserves to be completely trashed for its transfer, they will do the trashing. But when it, indeed a film needs to be praised for its transfer, they will give very, very good um, technical backgrounds as to why they enjoyed it so much. And the review of Cross of Iron was absolutely glowing. So when the film came out, I purchased it on Blu-ray. And I have to confess... I was absolutely stunned by what Optimum have achieved with the transfer. Purists, obviously, there's this kind of the war on grain at the moment. That's another got, you know, I'm waiting for that to become, you know, um, the first person who will probably be on the internet saying that a film's had its grain removed has ruined their childhood. I'm sure it must be around the corner. There must be some tosser who's kind of sat there thinking that crap up. But the grain structure of the film is perfectly intact, but it actually looks like this is. It, it looks like it can have been filmed yesterday. The print is that clear. And it, it's that film clear as well. This isn't kind of an artificial clear. It looks like a clean... It looks just like a beautiful, clean transfer of the film. And I've got a 50-inch television, and it's a Panasonic one, a pretty good one. And there was almost a three-dimensional aspect to the image. It was so clear. Absolutely glorious, and it's a dirty film, as I said. And you can see that dirt, you can kind of see the squalor these soldiers are living in. And it's a very bloody film and violent as well. And you really see those kind of those blood squibs working overtime. Absolutely stunning to watch. And this was all backed up as well because the DVD and the VHS had appalling soundtracks, and they've actually given a crystal clear LPCM 2.0 soundtrack. This isn't a film which was made with kind of like surround sound in mind. And I don't really like artificially created surround sound mixes per se. I've, I've listened to a few, some are pretty acceptable, but you know, when you give it this kind of like, real kind of like loads of action in the rear channels, it just feels a little bit fake to me. And go back to the episode I did on the World at War Blu-ray, um, in which the makers of that decided to take the mono soundtrack and turn it into a 5.1 soundtrack. And all right, you know, it, it's vaguely clever and stuff like that, how they've done it. It's not a bad soundtrack per se, but... I don't know it's actually necessary um, entirely and I think going back to that I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to film preservation how we should see them and I think you know, if a film was shot in mono yeah, let's, let's not be afraid of showing it in mono but what you can do and what Cross of Iron does show is that you don't need a kind of like a massive surround sound mix all you need to do basically is clear up the soundtrack take the pops and hisses off and it's a joy to behold just listening to it because it's every kind of what line of dialogue is so clear the gunfights are really kind of audible as opposed to how muffled they were on the DVD. And kind of just talking a little bit about the film, um, I think it's a real kind of underrated masterpiece. I certainly think it's one of the best war films that I've ever seen. 
Um, the story is of a chap called Steiner, played by James Coburn, and his platoon trying to survive the obsession an idealistic Prussian officer has, played by Maximilian Schell, to earn himself an Iron Cross. It is everything really you can kind of expect from Sam Peckinpah, anti-authoritarian, violent, beautiful, and if you just love the mechanics of filmmaking, it is an absolute joy in terms of shot composition and how it's been edited. What is even more amazing about the film is the fact that they actually filmed it in Yugoslavia, and one of Sam Peckinpah's kind of favourite vices at the time was cocaine, which you couldn't actually get in Yugoslavia. So he was continually necking the most hardest booze he could find. So he was pretty much off it the entire time he was filming Cross of Iron. And to still make something as coherently brilliant as this just shows you know, what, what could he have done um, with a clear head, but perhaps he needed to be absolutely off it to make films. We don't know, but I would certainly say it's one of my favourite war films, probably in my top ten. And yeah, you know, I think James Coburn's performance is absolutely brilliant. It might be a kind of you know fairly macho film, but there's some genuine, I think, brilliantly emotional moments in the course of its running time. And it isn't, I just don't think, this kind of big, loud, stupid war film that some people seem to think it is. And I think if you, if you do dig a little deeper in there, you will kind of get a lot more out of it. And of course, the fact that it's quite from quite an interesting perspective. We don't often see war films that kind of portray the Germans as the kind of the good guys, which obviously, you know, the war in Russia was absolutely notorious for its brutality, um, obviously committed by both sides, but especially the Germans. And in this film, you find yourself sympathising with a group of Germans, which is quite obviously a strange position to be put in. You don't, you don't often have that. And I doubt very much you kind of see that um, anytime soon either. So definitely do check this one out. Um, and as, I'm, as far as I'm aware, let me just double check actually. Huh? This is a Region B release. Um, so you, if you were to watch it from abroad, you would have to kind of have a player that can handle multi-region Blu-rays. But um, you can pick it up on Amazon at the moment on the UK, I think for about £8. And I got mine on Amazon Marketplace for 6 so it is definitely coming down in price. And if you love Crosses of Iron and I think you kind of want to rediscover the film again, definitely do check this out. The next release I'm going to be talking about is How the West Was Won. Now, I don't really kind of recommend this release as because I think the film is some kind of masterpiece but moreover I think because of its place in film history. Now to give a little bit of context in case you don't know, How the West Was One was filmed on a format called Cinerama. Now essentially how this worked was you had a camera that was effectively three cameras in one and the idea was that it would record a massively wide image and how these films were projected in cinemas was you'd actually have three projectors and you'd have one for the centre and two for the left and the right and the format also allowed for a 7.1 surround sound soundtrack. It was really kind of Hollywood was trying to win back audiences from the television. And I think it's very much, I think it's a story that kind of really echoes the whole kind of 3D thing at the moment. And How the West Was Won was the, I suppose, the avatar moment for the Cinerama format. I've actually seen um, films on Cinerama before, a documentary called This Is Cinerama, which was a kind of a, a travelogue film made to show off the format. Um, as a curiosity piece, yeah, it was, um, I suppose, an experience seeing this kind of film and how it was projected. But I can readily say that This Is Cinerama is one of the worst films I have ever seen in my life. It was an absolute chore to get through. And what it did do is actually show the limitations of the format, um, which I will get into in a little bit more detail. But How the West Was Won was epic. It was a massive film. And it doesn't tell the story. West was one that's a fairly kind of misleading title but 
it had three directors, John Ford, Henry Hathaway and George Marshall. And it tells the story of the migration west through the eyes of one family and consists of five very different segments, each one telling a snippet of American history and its relationship to the West. It is absolutely full of Hollywood stars of the time. John Wayne, George Peppard, Jeffrey Peck, James Stewart, Debbie Reynolds, Carl Morton. It is a kind of a who's who, really. It's one of those huge kind of, I suppose, a kind of an Avengers-type cast of all these stars. I would be lying if I said How the West Was One was a kind of a truly great film. It most certainly isn't. And it's got hasn't got a great reputation now and I think it's become kind of um, I suppose fashionable to kick it there was the, it, it, this, it predates things like the Wild Bunch and the kind of the western revisionist type of films but but regardless of this I personally think it's a very good fun film and it is an unashamedly Hollywood recreation of the west and you know, don't think Sergio Leone this is kind of comic book almost and you know you have kind of people living in abject poverty yet they still have you know, perfect teeth and nice hair and everyone seems to have a massive meal three times a day. You know, you can fire hundreds and thousands of rounds and they don't hit anyone. If you do get hit, you know, it doesn't really hurt that much and you know, people get shot in the leg by an arrow or something like that and then kill over and die. It's a ridiculous Hollywood extravaganza, but I personally really, really enjoyed it. Now, I've seen the film on... TCM before. One of the drawbacks of the Cinerama format was that obviously because you had it filmed on three different kind, you have obviously three different um, sets of film going through the camera to capture it. So when it was projected, you would have kind of slight differentiations in the quality of film, which obviously kind of happens when you when you're dealing with the format. But also when a character moves from one screen to the next, say from the middle to the left, if if the projectionist hadn't aligned the film properly there'd be like kind of slight kind of differentiations they would kind of like the character would kind of disappear into a line and kind of re-emerge or they might be slightly off so that they would walk past and then their body would appear at a slightly different angle or higher or lower than what from the previous screen and of course when I saw the film on TCM the restoration work that had been done was pretty poor to be honest with you and it's obviously on a flat television these kind of discrepancies showed up massively and it really was I suppose a film which was intended and always was intended to be shown in the cinema it really wasn't meant for a life on home video but of course in the age we live in that was something which was going to happen and Warner Brothers went back a few years ago and spent quite a considerable amount of money touching the film up restoring it and getting rid of these rather kind of obvious lines between the screens and the job they have done is absolutely incredible. This is a stunning restoration work, in my opinion. The image is beautifully clear. It's a very bright, colourful film, and these colours really kind of pop out the screen. There isn't any artificial touching up. They've just obviously gone back, really taken their time when they're handling the negative, scanned it in, probably at about 4K restoration, and the result is absolutely brilliant. But why I think this Blu-ray package is worth picking up is because you actually get two versions of the film. You get a normal flat widescreen presentation of the film, which is perfectly good. But the thing is, because I think um, to kind of accommodate the size of the screen, it is a slightly it's a slightly narrower um, widescreen presentation than you normally might be used to. But the real gem in the package is on the disc two, which is something called the Smilebox version. Now, what they've done is 
they've added a kind of a concave to the screen so that the left and right sides are actually wider and the film kind of obviously concaves into the screen. Now, that might sound absolutely hideous, but what it does, it gives you a fairly accurate representation of how the film would have been watched. Now, it's a system that works on the bigger telly, the better, basically. I think if you're watching this on anything below kind of 40 inches, I don't think you're really going to appreciate it. You're probably better off sticking with the kind of the flat presentation. But on a big television, I've also got a kind of a, a projector I owned a few, a few years ago, and I kind of I projected it up, and the result was absolutely stunning. It was so immersive that you kind of you forget that this kind of rather strange kind of presentation where you've got the kind of the sides so much bigger than the middle that kind of seems to go out the way after a while and you just sort of see it with kind of I suppose kind of like in a, as much as a kind of contemporary presentation is as humanly possible and I really really enjoyed seeing it like this it was you know, the inner kind of film geek in me came out Warner Bros I do think do some excellent home video releases um I will be doing one soon actually on the uh, Adventures of Robin Hood but they seem to really kind of, I think, have an appreciation for cinephiles and they make packages and releases which I think are cinephile orientated and that's such a relieving thing. I think, you know, we live in this kind of age where, you know, we have the, the vanilla release and the double dip and all that kind of stuff and Warner Bros. seem to kind of go, try and get things right a lot of the time with their older releases and certainly I think How the West Was One is an absolutely fascinating film to look at in terms of its place in film history because you know, let's not forget you know, Avatar I'm not a huge fan of that film but I think it has a place in cinema history I think it has it's you, know, you do have to look at the kind of commercial side of cinema as well I think sometimes and to give context of the way in which it kind of forces directors and artists to kind of change what they're doing and certainly I think um, Warner have given us this opportunity to try and appreciate the film um, for what it was when it was made in the modern age. I think it's a very kind of noble thing to do. The, the only kind of disappointment that I do have with the Blu-ray was that I said the Cinerama format um, catered for a 7.1 surround sound soundtrack. Now, you know, and don't get, you know, just to kind of get one thing out of the way. Oh, that's the other, the other thing about the Smilebox version. There is absolutely no difference in the kind of picture quality or the audio restoration that they've done. The discs are... Um, comparative, it's, it's you know, the smart box isn't a lesser version. They've still you know obviously the same kind of um, bit space on the disc has been given up for both versions. So don't worry about that. But going back to the soundtrack, Cinerama did allow for this um, seven point one. And when I watched this as Cinerama, they did do um, there was an intermission, and at the end of the intermission, they had the uh, surround sound demonstration, and it was pretty immersive. You know, it was you know things coming out the left and the right rear speakers and kind of doing like a full three sixty effect, but disappointingly Warner have opted for a 5.1 surround sound track on this release and I, I don't know whether that's because they didn't think many people would have 7.1 setups in their home I know they are quite rare I've got one in my loft and I was a little bit kind of like thinking you know, the, you know obviously you do have releases at 7.1 and you can they get down mixed for 5.1 and I, I think Warner Brothers could have done that this release was a few years ago so I don't know perhaps they were kind of um thinking 7.1 was going to take off but it does seem a little bit of a shame given that the elements would have probably been there for them to do a kind of match for match transfer of the sound but whatever I still think this is a um, a pretty important release to get hold of I, like I said I don't think you can I, I can't I can't really say this is one of the best westerns ever made it's certainly very very enjoyable it's quite good fun it's a visual spectacle I don't think it's really meant to be 
anything more than eye candy and I think it's certainly um, worth spending a Sunday afternoon getting into but you know, if you are obviously scored in the kind of the only peck and par things you might find it a little bit tame but you know what the hell you know sometimes you know a bit of fluff uh, is a good way of spending the afternoon it is available um, in all regions and you can get it at a pretty decent price I picked mine up for 6 99 on Amazon um, it does seem to fluctuate I think the highest I've seen it's 8 99 I think in America I've seen it for as much as uh, for as little as $10 sorry so um, it might be worth it and perhaps you can even rent it I don't know if you can rent the Smilebox version which is I think the real reason to buy it but you know, certainly um, it's not going to break the bank to get hold of it okay now in podcast news um, I've really got to um, as always, I suppose, and I, I probably mentioned in every episode now, um, the Hollywood Saloon have returned with a new donation pack, which they've named Nitrate. Now, it is a donation pack, and I think it's $15 that they've asked for, which when you kind of listen to what they've done and the amount of content you get, anyone who bitches about having to pay $15, quite frankly, is an idiot, because you know, there is this culture, I think, with podcasts, obviously we assume that they are free, but you know, they're certainly not free to... Um, Host, you know, they do incur costs and things like that. But even if I think the Hollywood Saloon was a pay-only podcast, I would still pay for it because it is that good. And what they've done with this nitrate pack is they've gone through year by year the '90s, talking about films that they watched and um, kind of films which had kind of like an impact on them. God knows how. I mean, some of the films, sorry, some of the, the amount of time they've been to the cinema in those years is absolutely incredible. I mean, I. You know, the most films I've ever been to in a year is probably about 20 that I've watched at cinema. I mean, these, you know, John and Andy were kind of topping um, 30, 40, 50. You know, even in, there's a special bonus episode in the pack as well where John actually watched 100 films in one year, which is absolutely incredible achievement. But it was well worth um, picking up and listening to. Like I said, it's only $15. There's about 24 hours worth of content on there. I've listened to them twice already. And not only, I think... Um, is it quite enlightening, quite a good fun listening? It's also, I think, really nice to support um, podcasts like the Hollywood Saloon. You know, I don't know the kind of the the uh, circumstances for either John or Andy, but you really get the impression that the um, donation pack really does help them out um, in a big way with kind of keeping the saloon going. And you know, although I don't kind of see it as a charity or anything like that, there are things out there which I would you know I do enjoy giving money to. I have a few charities and that I donate to each month and certainly you know, knowing that the fact that my $15 is helping keep that podcast going it's quite a good feeling and of course you know going back to it again it's a fantastic um, series of shows to listen to so do head over there and if you can um, fork out $15 for it I don't think you'll be disappointed at all also got to give a shout out to the Midnight Movie Cowboys they've recently done an episode on Planet of the Apes which I've listened to which I really enjoyed but um, Hunter Stewart also went back and did um, a look at the documentary filmmaker Joe Berlinger, and I can't remember the other guy's name actually who he works with. But um, I'm slightly pissed off of this actually because one of the films they what well, two of the films they talk about are the Paradise Lost films, which were a series of documentaries that they made about um, some kids called the Memphis Three who were wrongly um, imprisoned for apparently murdering some children. And these films are possibly one of the most devastating documentaries I've ever seen and they, they absolutely enraged me and it so happened complete, completely coincidentally that I watched these films and then the next day I heard that the Westman 3 were actually um, set free um, well and they still had to kind of admit their guilt and uh, it's a very very long complicated story and I could certainly recommend checking out Hunter and Stu's episode on it because it's really really um, insightful 
and they, they also kind of talk about some other films they've done uh, documentary with Metallica which I haven't actually seen yet but definitely go and give it a listen and obviously check out their Planet of the Apes episode because it was certainly very enjoyable now on another kind of topic which is uh, kind of more personal to me I did say on the last episode I'm actually making a film which is currently in um, pre-production and I just thought I'd give a quick update as to how this is all going when I was writing the film there was a character in it who I really really enjoyed um, he's not in it for very long it doesn't have very much to say but sometimes um, it's a bit of a weird thing when you're kind of writing um, you sort of become I don't know, you sort of become invested in your own characters in a way which you sort of start inventing these backstories for things like that and I started to kind of really wonder like who this guy was and my kind of mind sort of went on a bit of a tangent really and at the time I was suffering I think from a little bit of writer's block the uh, the film, I think, was I was struggling with a few elements of it, and I thought as a kind of an exercise, I would give myself a bit of time off it and uh, just sort of go back to it in a few weeks with a bit of fresh eyes. And what I actually did in this kind of time off, this little sabbatical from uh, the work I was doing on it, I wrote a short film about this character, and I kind of started expanding on it and changing it. And I suddenly thought to myself, well, I perhaps need to kind of um, do a bit of a dry run for the film and so what I've decided to do is make a little short film as well as the main film and the short film is going to be hopefully filmed in April of this year it's I think a pretty tight screenplay it's quite in, an interesting little story that I've written around this guy I'm in the, actually in the process at the moment of recruiting a director of photography to work on it who I'm hoping if this collaboration works might want to go on to do the film and one of those things that it's kind of brought up is what format to shoot in now Originally, I had it in my head that I wanted to do the whole thing on red, and then I kind of changed to 16mm, and then from talking to a few DPs, I've kind of come across another little camera called a Canon 7D, which is actually an SLR camera, it's actually a stills camera, um, but it can be kind of adapted to shoot films. Now, a few films that have been shot on it, uh, parts of Black Swan were, and 127 Hours was all shot on it, and I know some people work in the TV industry and they've been shooting documentaries on it. And what it does is it gives you the depth of focus you would get from a stills camera. And the quality is absolutely stunning. There are all manner of kind of lenses you can attach to the camera um, to kind of give it a more kind of cinematic look to your films. And I've kind of come around to the fact that I might be interested in shooting on this. Obviously, it has certain benefits to it, one of which is that it's relatively cheap to um, get the memory cards for. And they're actually kind of affordable to buy. Um, they actually retail at about £1,000 or a little bit more for kind of some various lenses. And I'm actually thinking I might just buy one because by the time you've kind of rented camera equipment, you are going to be kind of you know looking at about £1,000, especially if it's a short film. I'm hoping to do it over three or four days. And um, I kind of like looking at pricing up and stuff like that. And I sort of thought, well, I might just actually just buy my own and rent the lenses and stuff like that. So I'm in the process at the moment of picking a director of photography. One of the things I did kind of you do kind of realise when you're making um, independent films is um, I put an advert out on something called mandy.com which is a um, I suppose a jobs board for people in the creative industry and I did put some kind of uh, you know things like you must be based in the northwest etc um, I'm only looking to recruit a director of photography um, you know at worst if you're not in the no northwest you must be based in England etc and what you get is an absolute slew of um applicants who don't read that who just basically say oh, I'm based in Spain I'm based in Italy here's my showreel off you go and you, you have to just kind of sift through all this and you get a lot of people as well who sort of seem to think that you know they filmed at someone's wedding and now they, they're ready to do a feature film or a, a short or whatever and what you find is you, you get some people who are extremely aggressive and pushy 
and understandably so, you know, obviously they're in an industry where they have to earn money. I have actually offered the um, role of the DP for this um, short film. I've offered to pay £1,500, which is quite a lot, I think, for a kind of short film, you know, fairly kind of, you know, amateur production. But my, my rationale behind doing this was I thought it would weed out a lot of the chances and would attract a certain quality. And there's certainly been a lot of people who have kind of come back to me with very impressive showreels. Some of them aren't based in the North West and I've resigned to the fact that I'm going to have to kind of look a little bit further afield to recruit, but I'm currently in the process of watching through people's um, showreels and trying to pick what it is I'm really trying to... It, well, looking at their showreels to see if it kind of is in keeping with what I've got in my mind for what I want, want the films to look like. Um, one of the key requisites I've been thinking about is what what kind of aspect ratio do I want to shoot in here? You know, I sort of thought when I started making films, I want to go for the biggest widescreen possible, but that becomes with so many kind of um, caveats to it that I've actually kind of thought I'm going to go for a 16.9 image, for example. But having, and in one of the films I'm going to be talking about in the review segment of this episode, um, I've kind of changed my mind a little bit on that as well. So it's um, an incredibly uh, interesting process so far. It's a little bit of a headache. One of the things, I, I'm actually self-employed, and at the moment I've got so much work on it's unbelievable obviously it's good financially for me but um i haven't had time to kind of do as much podcasting as i want as um and kind of pay as much attention to this film that i need so i perhaps might be looking to recruit a um someone to help me with the producing kind of line managing type aspects of the film which i think would kind of take a little bit of the load off me a little bit but it's i suppose managing your own expectations as well which is what you kind of find when you're involved in production of this level you are not going to get beautiful looking films with the type of money that I'm making this on but you can get I think modern technology allows you to really get something that is pretty special looking and you know obviously you have to factor in things as well like you know editing and you know what kind of post effects you're going to add afterwards and you I'm just about to buy a Mac and obviously that's going to open up a massive wide uh, range of possibilities to me but I think one of the things I found is that I've got to kind of be a little bit realistic. And I thought watching some of these showreels and I thought, oh, you know, that doesn't look kind of what I'm really looking for or that, you know, I thought that looks a little bit amateurish and things like that. But you sort of realise, you know, these people mostly who are working on low-budget productions with a whole host of limitations. And it's seeing beyond those, really, to see what fits in with how I'm thinking and what I want. And it has been really, I think, for me personally, something I'm finding incredibly fulfilling to do. I actually kind of, it, it's like you're kind of giving yourself an instant promotion. You can sit around sort of saying, oh, I want to be a filmmaker. Or you can sort of say, right, I'm a filmmaker now and I'm making decisions about my film. And you sort of give yourself this promotion. You feel quite good about yourself. Obviously, until it actually happens, you're still, I suppose, in some respects, someone who's just talking about it and not actually doing it. But I certainly think things are moving in the right direction. I'm as soon as this short film's made, like I said, hopefully we should um, aim for an April-May um, shooting time. As soon as this short film's made, I will post it up so, you know, to kind of garner some feedback from listeners and things like that and just, you know, see what people actually kind of think of um, my kind of directorial style. So I, I, I will add a page to the blog as well. I keep threatening to do it, but like I said, I've got so much on at the moment. It's an absolute pain in the ass, really. I just don't have time to do more fun stuff, which is... Uh, you know, kind of concentrate on the blog and uh, get this page up about the production. But I will eventually get something up there and um, hope you can keep tabs on what I'm up to. And you know, if anyone has any kind of input or anything like that, please do let me know. Um, once I finish the script for the main film, please um, you know, feel free if you want a copy, I'll set, gladly send one over. It'll be interesting to kind of hear people's uh, thoughts and takes on it. 
So I'm going to round up this episode with two reviews of films that I've seen. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that I've um, chosen to talk about these films because I think of the process I'm going through with making my own film. I think I've become attracted to a certain type of storytelling and visual style, which I think is going to kind of really be apparent when people do see my work. One of the things that I don't like about modern cinema is how you can see the money on the screen and that is of course the curse when you have all this kind of CGI and exposition filled dialogue. Modern cinema is loud and brash and in your face, well certainly the Hollywood side of it is. So I've been actively seeking out films which I think completely counter all this and one of those that I come across is how I ended this summer because and there's no going to be no pun intended here and obviously the, the, the pun you will um, become apparent in a little bit when I talk about the film but this is the polar opposite of everything that is overblown and excessive about modern cinema the potential for my pun comes from the film setting it is in the Arctic Circle in which two characters Pavel played by and you're going to have to forgive my god-awful Russian pronunciation here, Grigory Dubroyan, and Sergei, played by Sergei Puskepolis. That even sounds Greek, so um, yeah, for clarification, go on IMDb. I think you could, uh, if you so will, want to know these guys' names. But they are two guys who are in a research station cut off from the outside world. Now, the terrain around them is totally unforgiving. There are snowstorms, mountains, of course the ice, polar bears. There are also man-made dangers around them in the form of a radioactive malfunctioning isotope-powered generator that the Russians installed as long-life batteries for lighthouses and other research facilities in the Arctic Circle. Pavel is a young student taking a job as a part of a university project. The station is for the most part his playground. He swings on things, throws stones forgets to take out shotgun shells, which leaves him open to attack by a polar bear, making up stats to radio back to the other research station on the mainland. He does not really respect the job and constantly listens to his headphones. He is the archetypal carefree youth, selfish and devoid of responsibility. Sergei is a long-term researcher, having been at the station for many years. To him, it is a, very, it is a way of life, struggling to really understand the modern world. He's Sir I takes the job very, very seriously. Uh, he respects its importance and what it means. And it's fair to say he's not exactly happy with Pavel, almost battering him when he finds out that he's been sending fake reports back. A chance to kind of uh, separate the two comes when Sergei heads out onto the lagoon on the island to do some fishing for some few days, leaving the station in the capable hands of Pavel. One day when Pavel is radioing some stats back to the mainland, he's informed that Sergei's wife and child have been killed in an accident. What is even worse is that the ship that is coming to relieve them in a few weeks has been trapped in ice, making extraction almost impossible for several months. Pavel, fearing how Sergei will react, is faced with a dilemma. Does he tell him and risk having to spend months with him possibly unhinged? Or does he wait, knowing that at any moment the voice on the other end of the radio will give the game away, leading to Sergei turning on him and perhaps giving him another kicking, or worse? The film has an almost Hitchcockian type thriller aspect to it, but firstly, I think, 
the thing that I love about it most is the setting. Now, director Alexei Pogreski filmed on location the Arctic Circle at an, at an actual research station. The crew had to battle the elements and hungry polar bears were a kind of a daily ordeal that they had to cope with. But the hardships they had to endure are so worth it because the location of the film alone is a reason to watch it. It's filmed on red with D.O.P. Um, Pavel Komostrov. And what him and Pogretsky have done is create an incredible visual spectacle. The vastness of the place is absolutely staggering. And the, the station itself is such a fascinating set. It's, it's worth, you know, it, it just shows you how good films look when they are filmed out on location. There's not a, you know, a, a hint of CGI anywhere. And it's this incredible kind of location that's got kind of bowels strewn around and kind of bits added to it 50 years ago in kind of new buildings and it's just like wonderful emotive location and I have a kind of a, a, a bit of a weird preference for kind of abandoned remote places I absolutely love them for some reason I don't know why I will spend hours on Google looking at kind of abandoned places in kind of islands on South Georgia and things like that I don't even know why I do it but for some reason I just find it kind of like really kind of interesting and learning about all these places and what they've done is they've opted to shoot the film in 16-9 ratio and the added height is perfect for conveying how nature truly dominates the region up there. The comfort and the safety afforded by the station is only relative to what nature throws up and it's that added threat that really kind of gives this story this added layer of tension and of course with, you, know, you obviously have the, kind of the central premise of the film, what, what will happen if, if uh, Sergei founds out about his wife and child but I was reminded watching it of Plansky's A Knife in the Water and there's this kind of just ever-present threat of violence simmering away under the surface and you know as Pavel toils with telling Sergo the truth about what's happened you're kind of almost begging him to do it and but also kind of begging him for him not to do it at the same time because you are we are genuinely worried about how he's going to react both the central leads, and they're only, um, for the most part, these are the only two guys who are actually in the film, give absolutely fantastic performances. And especially with Pavel, I think he kind of has this kind of, he starts with quite annoying character, but kind of, I think, matures quite a lot over the course of the film. And it's only kind of, I suppose the kind of timeline of the film is only a few days, but he kind of really kind of goes through this kind of genuine change that I kind of, it, you don't often see characters kind of change so genuinely in cinema a lot of the time it's kind of enforced by the situation in a lot of films and they kind of they, they change because the, the screenplay tells them to change not because the actual events are making them change in this film i certainly think you get a good grip of that happening and one of the things i th i think i really do enjoy about how i spent the summer is that i've kind of given you this premise of you know this thriller type film but this film will surprise you a lot more it isn't the film you think it's going to be it, I think the film's marketing, I mean, obviously, I, film marketing is something which I think really doesn't do films a lot of good anyway, but the marketing for this did make it out like it was going to be this type of kind of, you know, almost kind of like Rambo-style type of uh, battle of wills, and it, it really isn't. It's something far more subtle, and it is, it is genuinely a white-knuckle film at times. It really does kind of have moments in it where you are kind of recoiling on the seat, but it isn't that type of roller coaster ride you might think it's going to be it's something far more subtle and i think you know it's director progresky is 
um, he was a psychology student before he got into filmmaking. I think you can really see someone trying to kind of get to a deeper human place than cinematic convention often dictates. And it, there is that kind of element, especially, and this is obviously a Russian film, it's in subtitles. Russian cinema is quite hard to get into. I think it's, it's a very kind of unrelenting type of cinema. It's very kind of deep sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm getting into kind of like the uh, Tarkovsky stuff at the moment. And you, know, it, you have to really work hard with films like that. And this isn't some kind of Tarkovsky-esque kind of journey into the human psyche. It is, it's a very, very entertaining film. It's very funny. It's quite scary. And it's just thoroughly enjoyable. I think you've know, got to get to this thing at the moment where cinema isn't great at the moment you know the multiplex isn't a kind of harbour of great films i think we have to kind of adopt this mentality that great cinema isn't going to be fed to us we have to go to it and i think how i spent the summer is one of those films that if you go to you'll get an immensely rewarding viewing experience out of it certainly this is a contention for one of my favorite films of the year um, it's just come out on DVD. Um, it only got a very, very limited release, uh, cinema release here. Um, I don't even know if it was on in Manchester. I picked it up on um, from Love Film, and I can certainly recommend it out. I actually rented the DVD, but I would um, also recommend checking out the Blu-ray as well because it's um, certainly yeah, a pretty fantastic film to look at. I don't know what its availability is in North America, but I'm sure you can find ways of getting hold of it. Certainly recommend it. Again, if you want that type of intelligent thriller it might if i would say kind of like you compare it with anything in terms of what you'll get out of it i said something like the conversation it's that kind of thriller that boils under the surface and is and even if you don't get into the story just looking at this film is a joy to behold well if it's riches you're after there's riches are plenty you mark my words <laughs> We'll find a land downhill. We need water. That much I know. That's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're just finding our way. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. This is only a bad dream soon. It's going to be a story to tell. Quick one. He knows where the water is. Well, I've seen him strip the flesh clean off a man while he's still breathing. Who knows what's over that hill? Could be water. Could be an army of heathens. Meek's Cut-Off, which is another kind of visually Spartan film, which I'll get to in a little bit, but 
first thing I kind of really need to talk about why I decided to check this film out. It was it came out um, a few months ago. Really, I didn't kind of get around to seeing it at cinema again. I think it probably played in Manchester for about twenty minutes, but I have a kind of um, you know a love of American history, and one of the programs which I have kind of gone back to repeating in life is Alistair Cook's excellent series America, and there is one episode in particular where he is standing next to some rock, and in the rock you can see the indentations of wagons which were from the 49ers, which were the people who travelled out through the West. And it's one of those moments where you can kind of get this tangible sense of the past. You can actually kind of see and feel the history. It's a bit like, I recently went to Canterbury Cathedral again with my girlfriend, and there's graffiti on the walls there, which is like, you know, from the time. And it's, it's just really strange to kind of, you see this connection with the past. And what I loved about this series was it kind of, what Alistair Cook did was he sort of deconstructed the myths of the West. And Mick's Cutoff is, I think, a film which really kind of taps into that notion. It really kind of deconstructs these kind of ideals that we have in the West. But when we sort of talk about films like Unforgiven as being these kind of revisionist Westerns, they're not so much, I suppose, closer to the actuality of what the West was like. They more, I suppose represent a departure from the Hollywood vision of the West and its various conventions. Mig's cutoff is not revisionist in this sense. I think it is more of an attempt at presenting a far more accurate depiction of what actually was than has been done before. I suppose when you strip it to its component parts, Mig's cutoff is a drama in which the uncertainty and the fear of the unknown of the West are laid terrifyingly bare. There is no rousing score to urge our protagonists on. Moreover, just a near never-ending of expense of desert and not a drop of water in sight. And it is these things where the film's kind of terror and uncertainty lies. Set on the Oregon Trail in 1845, it begins with a group of wagoners crossing America to find a new life in the West. Incidentally, as well, um, what I t- one of the things I did kind of very subtle things I noticed about this film, which I enjoy, we as Western audiences, we read from left to right, and if you, it's one of the reasons why in Lawrence Arabia, whenever you see that film, Lawrence is always seen moving from west to east or left to right. In Mix Cutoff, they're moving from east to west, from right to left on the screen. It's one of the interesting little things, and it was just a nice little touch which I really enjoyed about it. But the group is headed by Meek, a tracker played by Bruce Greenwood. And he's kind of, I suppose, one of the most recognisable types of the um, film. He kind of wears kind of his beaver skins and uh, looks like he's kind of gone a little bit kind of shaggy over the years, being out there on his own all the time. And the journey was supposed to have taken two weeks, but now five weeks in, the group, most notably the women, are beginning to question if they are in fact lost. And with water running low, the men decide to keep faith in Meek and carry on. Matters are complicated when the group come across a Native American Indian. He is captured and subject to all kinds of racist abuse and most notably from Meek wants to kill him because they fear that if he escapes he will bring more back with them. However, the women, despite their obvious prejudices, offer help to him and want to try and keep him alive. In the Indian, the group may have found their saviour. Although unable to speak English, the Indian may know the right way to water. But is he leading them to a trap? Are there others following him? 
The women begin to accept him as part of the group, even offering him water and preparing his moccasins so he can actually walk better. As the journey continues, the stark truth becomes clear. They are indeed completely and utterly lost. And with the situation democratising the group, the women begin to play a more important part in their own destiny. Only who should they place their faith in? Meek, who clearly has no idea where they're going, or the Indian to lead them to salvation. Director Kelly Reichardt and director of photography Chris Bouvet opted to shoot the film in a 1-3-3-1 frame, the old Academy ratio. Now, when you think of the setting of this film, its vastness and its you know, never-ending vistas, it seems quite a strange technical choice to make to go for this very narrow, obviously slightly higher framing. However, what you very quickly realise about Mix Cutoff, this is not about wowing you with the epic, and it, it, it reminds you, this is not Hollywood presentation of the West. It is a, I suppose, meant to be this kind of look into the past. And what you find with the framing in this way is that it forces you to focus on the characters and see how they are relating to the environment. One of the things I did find about this framing, and it, it seems it's, it's, it's a, what I'm about to say is completely stupid because obviously the, I'm not even sure if um, the camera was invented in 1845. I think it might have been a little bit later, but what I found was that this kind of aspect ratio, this academy ratio, kind of reminded me of the technical limitations of the time. This is, of course, you know, the age where you know people did not have sat mats; they had maps, hand-drawn maps, which were fairly, to the most part, inaccurate. I mean, there were certain kind of like, um, especially, well, I suppose the world's oceans have been mapped pretty accurately, but kind of land was still a fairly unknown place. People didn't really know where, um, you know, the nearest waterhole was. You know, certain distances were kind of changed depending on the person who was deciding, who was making the map, sorry. And what Card does is she completely slows the film down. It is only an hour and a half, but it does feel like it's a lot longer. And she composes the frame and the action in a measured, controlled way that kind of you just see the hardship that these people are facing and that unknown. You know, what is over the next hill? You know, it, it seems so, you know, in the age we live in today, the world is largely, you know, it's completely opened up. We kind of, we know these things. But imagine being in that situation where you don't honestly know what is around the next corner. You don't even know if you're heading in the right direction. That situation is thoroughly terrifying to us. And we know now we just whip out our phone, we know exactly where we are. In those days, you, you didn't have those luxuries. So you, know, you could find yourself walking out there to your death. You know, what a horrendous, horrible way to go that would be. And you know, you, what you see in the film is that we don't have this kind of like trivial dialogue almost. You know, for, its, for its opening, we just see these people trying to kind of keep alive, trying to kind of going about the daily day, making sure the wagons are working, making sure their shoes are still in one piece, you know, agonising over what to eat for, for food because you know, they don't obviously know the next time they're going to be able to get hold of any more. We don't really find out much about the character's backstory. We don't kind of really spend much time kind of finding out who they are as people. Moreover, it is the situation at hand that is the most pressing concern that Reichardt is interested in. Now, the group consists of Meek and three couples. The most recognisable, I think, being Emily and Solomon Trethrow, played by Michelle Williams and Will Patton, respectively. Now, the men 
make all the decisions for the group. I mean, this is obviously an age where um, there wasn't you know, equality as we know it today. But the women are hardly spectators either, and indeed they are increasingly assertive as the film goes on. The again, it kind of comes back to this idea of the uh, you know the, the marketing for this film being poor. If you look at it, it's it's supposed. I think it's Michelle Williams on the poster wielding a, a gun, and that gives you such a false impression of what this film is about. The reason why the women uh, are not just kind of sat there, kind of screaming and dilly dallying, is because in reality they had to contribute. They had to be able to use weapons because it was those things that kept kept you alive. You know, it's it's not kind of like you know all. You know, we'll give a woman a gun because you know, you know she should have to use it when kind of the uh, situation demands. You know, she would have a good working knowledge to how to clean that weapon, how to load it, because that was what would be would keep her and her family alive. But the film doesn't worship women, and I don't think it's this film has a kind of like a massive feminist agenda. I know I've read a few reviews of it where they kind of focus on this kind of like um, you know the female angle, and suddenly it's it's a slightly different perspective that we see. In the Western, but I don't think this film's like kind of like you know a bra burning, you know, give women their liberation type thing. I I think it's just showing you the reality of the situation, and and obviously as the kind of the time goes on, they become more lost. These women have an increasingly important say in their survival and their destiny. What I think the the genius of I suppose Bright Cars film here is is that there's this overriding sense that they are just teetering on the edge of oblivion and she doesn't even have to show you it you can just fill in the blanks yourself and you in in, in many westerns the kind of the uh, the films are about the pursuit of revenge and kind of or material wealth and it makes cut off there's a, there's a brilliant scene where they find gold just scattered around and normally this is kind of like a massive issue in westerns it's a massive narrative point but in this you know, all that happens is that Meek just sort of says there Sandra says well it can't be drunk and it just completely reminds you of the fact that yeah they've got all this wealth lying around potentially but the simple fact of the matter is what they really need is water because without the water they are going to die one of them I think it's most important aspect is how it delves into the realms of belief and the inherent contradictions of religion the Indian is always referred to in a variety of derogatory terms and they kind of make up backstory for him, especially the men, that he's just probably this kind of murdering, pillaging um, group of Indians. But Meek himself is the most, the only one who we know is definitely the most morally dubious person in the group. He even admits to taking part in the mass murder of native Indians. He, he has participated in genocide, yet he says that this man is savage and evil, yet he's the one who's actually committed these horrific acts but basically his rationale behind this is because he is a heathen the Indian he doesn't believe in God like me does and the mere fact that he believes in God makes him a better person despite the fact that he's the only one who is a certified murderer in the group and of course as well it is this notion of belief you know especially the women you know is this guy is this, have they found this Indian to lead them to salvation who is it they should place their faith in? You have to sort of think about it in that, that dynamic of, you know, we this guy is a heathen because he doesn't believe. So do they then say, well, God sent him to us to lead us to? Would God do something like that, send someone, a non-believer, to send them, to lead them to salvation? The film does not try and answer these questions for you. I think they're things you have to look at and find out yourself. But 
one of the things I would kind of kind of say about it, which I know certainly when I I know someone else who's seen it, who said that they found the ending incredibly unsatisfactory. I think that is I think it's the one of the film's strongest points is its ending because as I was talking about this kind of notion of belief, it's kind of you can you can kind of make of it what you will, you know. In many respects, you know that we know that these women as well they are as precious as meek in some respects. They refer to uh, black people with niggers in it, for example. You know, do these people actually deserve to be um, kind of led to salvation? You know, we we all know what happened in the with the Native Americans. They were massacred, and their way of life almost kind of completely eradicated. You know, in a, in a sense, this is what these people are travelling out to the West to do. They are the precursors of this genocide. So. I think it's a very interesting moral film as well, which you can certainly take a lot from. I've gone back to it twice now, and I've, I've really kind of found it to be um, an immensely rewarding experience. And I think this, and along with films like How I Ended Summit, have really kind of reignited a passion in me for contemporary cinema again, because, you know, I, I've, I've had a few... Um, well, basically, I, I, I obviously kind of see what comes out week after week, and it is a lot of crap out there, but... You know, just by kind of picking up a copy of Sight and Sound, or just doing a little bit of digging, there are these. Uh, there is this other side of cinema at the moment to be found, where I think you will find things which can move you and make you think a little bit more than the crap that's being served up to us. We obviously, I think, we look at Hollywood as being our compass for originality, and I think we have to kind of get over that now collectively and sort of, you know. Directors like Kelly Reichardt, I mean, I, this is the first of her films I've ever seen. It's, I'm going to track her career with a great deal of interest because I think this is someone who's got a genuine voice in American cinema at the moment. I hope she doesn't become um, kind of weighed down with the crap and I hope she doesn't take the big budget stuff. I hope she sticks to kind of films like this and kind of continually pushing audiences to perceive film in a different way, which I certainly think Meeks Cutoffs did. So anyway... Um, I think the film is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray. There is a Blu-ray in America of it, which I've, um, I've read on the Blu-ray.com that the review of it is absolutely brilliant. Apparently it has a stunning picture quality. I just watched the standard F from DVD and uh, it was still pretty good uh, quality to see. So I you know, certainly recommend checking out at least on a rental basis. And I said it's only an hour and a half, but it does feel a little bit longer, but that, I don't think that's a detriment because the... Uh, you know, the film is boring and anything like that. I just think it's because of the pacing, I think, kind of slows it right down. But anyway, do check it out. And that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. Many thanks for listening. If you want to email me, do so at 24framescast at gmail.com. Come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com and you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. I'll be in contact soon and many thanks for listening. Bye.